We're still in uh, Galatians. I nearly said Genesis then, that's throwback. Um, we're still in Galatians, and today I think we're going to come to one of the more intriguing parts of this book. Uh, so let's read. This is Galatians 2, just a few verses, 11 to 16. Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16. But when Cephas, that's another name for the famous disciple Simon Peter, by the way, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. When I was at school, um, there was one word that was guaranteed to bring all children running from all corners of the playground. Fight! 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 Oh, we want to see that, don't we? We love a bit of argy-bargy, as long as we're not caught up in the middle of it. What is that instinct, anyway? The, the primal urge to watch two of our peers knock seven bells out of each other, to pick a winner and cheer them on. It's very odd. You can probably tell I'm not a fan of boxing. And what we have in this passage is a bit of a do between the apostles Peter and Paul. Fight! Uh, by the way, if you don't know what apostle means, just uh, substitute the word, the phrase, holy dude, and it works just as well. There was a bit of a dude between holy dude Peter and holy dude Paul. So Peter's given his Greek name here, Cephas, but this is probably the same Peter who, after being handpicked by Jesus, spent loads of time with him, getting to know his teaching and his ways, who swore he'd never betray Jesus, promptly betrayed him, became racked by guilt, got forgiven, and accepted Jesus' task, which was to feed his lambs. Peter, passionate, hot-headed Peter, who broke his promise to Jesus, was one of the people that God used to turn the world around. Do you ever make a promise to God and then break it? Don't have to answer that. But if so, the story of Peter should bring you a lot of hope, because it's not about you and how well you behave. It's about him and how he saves. And the other holy dude is Paul, also called Saul. Don't know why people had to have so many names in those days. It's so confusing. Holy dude Paul was the chap who'd been trying to get Christians into as much trouble as possible. If Christians were being beaten or stoned to death, Paul was the one there selling tickets, the one ratting them out. And not because he was a nasty person, incidentally, quite the contrary. Paul was an upstanding citizen. I mean, he, but he saw Christians as a scourge, as the worst possible evil at large 
in his nation, even worse than the Roman oppressors who were giving the Jews such a hard time. And Paul wanted these Christians tortured. He wanted them dead. But then he met Jesus powerfully, lost his sight, got his sight back again, and committed the rest of his life to taking that power, that message of hope, to as much of the world as possible. God used him to turn the world around. So, another passionate guy then, another guy with strong opinions. You know what happens when two passionate, opinionated people disagree? Have you ever ever witnessed that? So like I say, this is an intriguing passage. At this point in their journeys of faith, uh, Peter and Paul are both passionate for the gospel. And they're passionate to tell people about Jesus, passionate to make sure people know there's a heaven, and that God wants to save them, and that there's a hell, and that they've got a choice to make. Passionate to tell people that the righteous and just God of the universe loves them. He's looking to save them from the eternal consequences of their sin. So you'd think that Peter and Paul would be on the same page. Uh, Christianity is Christianity, isn't it? Believe in Jesus, that's it. Job done. Nothing to argue about. Well, that would be the case if it weren't for one teeny tiny fly in the ointment. Our sinful natures. The sinful nature of a supposedly holy dude. When we become Christians, when we give our lives to Christ, and we say we're turning from all that junk that we used to be into, we put this sinful nature, these evil thoughts and desires, we put them to death. But the trouble is, as I'm sure we all know, with the sinful nature, it doesn't want to stay dead. But when we watch dodgy films, we feed our sinful natures. When we fantasize about people, we feed our sinful natures. When we steal from our employers, We steal time, we steal stationery, we feed our sinful natures. When we gossip about people, we feed our sinful natures. Day after day, we find a thousand different ways to bring that awful sin nature back to life again. Well, you know, some sins don't seem that bad. Let's say you bump into a good friend of yours. And this friend is wearing an outfit that can only be described as a mistake. I wasn't looking at you, Howard, I promise. And that friend has low self-esteem and asks you, how do I look? And you say, oh, you look great. If anyone can pull off a turquoise and pink hairy suit, it's you. Well, you just lied, didn't you? But it's not so bad, is it? You were protecting your friend's feelings. Listen to this. Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The lake that burns with fire. I can see how we might consider the compliment to our friend to be a little sin, but it's a lie and God judges it. So my point is that our sinful hearts lead us to do some things that sometimes may seem very moral, but they're really just sin dressed up as good deeds. So when Peter was faced with this conundrum, 
uh, when he thought there was a risk of offending people or whatever it was, he probably thought he was doing the right thing. I mean, he certainly didn't mean to bring the gospel into disrepute. And he probably didn't mean to give the Gentiles a problem, did he? I think we know enough about Peter's character to reach that conclusion. So let's look at today's reading a bit more closely. Verse 11, Galatians 2, verse 11. And remember, this is Paul writing, and he's talking about Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh, This meeting has come to be known as the Incident at Antioch. Sounds like the name of a Star Trek episode. The Incident at Antioch. That's the one where Spock discovers Kirk has been replaced by a shape-shifting alien whose sole agenda is to start an intergalactic war with the Romulans, the Klingons, the Andorans, and the Federation. You didn't see that episode. The Incident at Antioch. Sharon's going to kill me later, going on about Star Trek. So just before this, as we heard when Emma preached, we've seen how Paul and his right-hand man, Barnabas, they've been accepted by as apostles by all the other holy dudes. And Peter and James and John, they met up with Paul and they said, yeah, Paul's okay. He's honoring Jesus. We can work with him. And right after being accepted, after being commended, recognized in this way, the next thing we see is Peter standing up against Paul, standing up against Peter. It's like you've just become good friends with someone Agreed how much you like each other, and then the next thing that happens, they're criticizing your pink, hairy suit. Tense, isn't it? Paul opposed Peter to his face, note, because he stood condemned. At least are strong words. And Paul had no difficulty being very open and direct with Peter. We could learn a lesson here. You know, sometimes we work hard to avoid offending people so that we, we, we water down the strength of the message. We, so we know a friend is sleeping around, we shrug, we say to ourselves, well, we love them, they have their lives, we have ours. But this friend is a Christian. How about stop sleeping around? It's a sin, God doesn't like it, you're playing with fire. When I was preparing this sermon, um, Ben put this scripture on his Facebook wall. It's Proverbs 27, verses 5 to 6. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But Paul was direct when the circumstances called for it. But what what were those circumstances? Read on. Chapter 2, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party. That's like the worst party ever. Penny's dropping. Uh, what's the issue? What's the issue here? Imagine you've grown up your whole life believing it's polite to eat with your knife and fork, and then you move to America, and they're like, knives? Who needs them? Not only do they eat with just a fork, they use it in the wrong hand. That's just wrong, isn't it? 
This may seem like an odd example, so let me explain. These Jews had grown up with lots of rules, so many rules. Circumcision, getting a bit twitchy about saying that word so much, but what can you do? Circumcision was a really big deal for them because it was a special sign of the covenant. It was a sign of the promises that God had given them. And that sort of thing, all those rules, the right way of doing things, it's hard to put them down. A bit like how difficult it is to adjust to a different way of eating, to get beyond seeing the knifeless plate as an utter abomination. When Jesus told his followers that he had fulfilled the law, that was really hard for them to take in. What did it mean? It didn't mean that circumcision had become irrelevant, but it did mean that this was no longer the sign of commitment to God. Because the sign of commitment to God under the new covenant was repentance. Turning from sin, turning to follow Jesus. And some Jews really struggled to accept that. They struggled so much that they were arguing that when people became Christians, even if they were Gentiles, non-Jews, they needed to get the snip in order to be proper Christians. They were taking their knives, forcing them into the hands of the Americans and shouting, Oi! Use it! Literally. You see, before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but after... He separated himself. The most likely explanation for this probably is the Gentiles didn't have all the Jewish laws about food. So there's a good chance that if a Jew went to eat with a Gentile, he'd end up being faced with food that wasn't kosher. It was considered unclean or forbidden by the Jews. So Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. And he was scared. He was scared of what? The Jews would think if he carried on eating with the Gentiles, scared of being judged, scared of peer pressure. Well, what's the problem with that? Read verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. There are two big problems in that verse, and one of them's obvious, the other one's not quite so obvious. Hypocrisy, firstly most obviously. We hate hypocrisy, don't we? We all hate it, but we're all guilty of it. You see the irony there? I'm guilty of hypocrisy in me, yet judge it in others. But what is hypocrisy? It's pretending to be something we're not. It's trying to make other people think more highly of us than we deserve, trying to appear more virtuous than we actually are. Now, we probably think it's a noble thing to dislike hypocrisy. You know, after all, Jesus seemed to dislike it, didn't he? But before we start to think well of ourselves for hating hypocrisy, let's look at our hearts for a second. Firstly, if a a hypocrite is making himself look better, he's making others look worse. We don't like being made to look worse. It offends our pride. And secondly, if someone makes himself look better through a kind of deception, we don't feel that he deserves it. And that provokes our jealousy. He got there without the proper effort. So we may well hate hypocrisy, 
But if our motivation for hating it is the sin in us of pride or jealousy or both, we should probably take a moment before we open our mouths to judge. All that said, hypocrisy is a bad thing, and Paul criticizes Peter for his. Right, the second problem in verse 13, the less obvious one, read it again. Even Barnabas was led astray. Let's quickly dive into the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. And this is Jesus with his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. We all have influence, whether that's as parents, as colleagues, as friends, our actions, our behaviors, they have an impact on other people. And if our actions or our attitudes are wrong, this can make other people think it's okay for them to go along with it, to join us in our poor behavior. And this is what had happened with Barnabas. So he'd watched what Peter and the Jews did and he was led astray. We have a responsibility to the people around us, always. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to lead lives that are worthy of the gospel, never to cause others to stumble in their faith. And this, by the way, is what is so bogus about the modern concept of morality. You know how people like to judge right and wrong these days? They say, it's okay as long as you don't hurt anyone. It's okay as long as you don't hurt anyone. I mean, you can take that saying and you can hold it up against the Bible and it's easy for us as Christians to see how the standard fails because we have lots of duties as humans, as children of God. Yes, we have a duty not to hurt others, but we also have the duty to worship God, a duty to honor our parents, a duty to rest, and so on. So the modern standard of morality doesn't stand up to the Bible, to the teachings of Jesus. But there's a deeper problem than this. Listen carefully, concentrate, because this is kind of tricky to grasp. So people may well say that this is the principle they're living by, but they overlook the essential point that we've just been talking about, which is that our behaviors, our actions, influence other people. People adopt our views as their own. My behavior doesn't happen in isolation or in a vacuum. Others see it, and sometimes they copy it especially those who are younger, who have perhaps not walked as long with God as we have. And this is how morality is eroded. This is how prejudice spreads. It only takes one influential person to make a racist or a sexist remark, and soon others adopt that way of talking, of thinking. The more alcohol I am seen to consume, which is not a sin, the more other people around me are likely to consume. It's okay for him, it's okay for me. 
So when, when we say do no harm, we forget to measure the harm that is caused when we injure people's consciences. We forget to measure the harm that's caused when we injure other people's consciences. Barnabas was led astray, but Paul held Peter accountable. So Paul continues, verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's quite damning, isn't it? Of course, we're all guilty of falling out of step with the truth of the gospel. In my case, I wonder how often I'm actually in step with the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? It's that Jesus came to save sinners like me and you. It's that his salvation doesn't depend on our race, gender, wealth, strength, social class, sexual conduct, fame, or our so-called good deeds. That faith is an essential prerequisite to pleasing God. That no human is here by accident. That God saves Jews and God saves Gentiles, and he doesn't do it because of how closely they've observed the law. Salvation is by God's grace, his free gift through our faith, our trust in him. That although works don't achieve salvation, if we say we are saved, but our life doesn't reflect that, it raises questions. That God's free gift to us is something to be shared generously, not kept to ourselves. Are we walking in step with the truth of the gospel? Peter wasn't, fully. And he effectively shunned the Gentiles when the other Jews arrived. He acted as though abiding by the law was a big deal. He confused the Gentiles and he provoked arrogance and hypocrisy in the Jews. And worse still, he did this publicly, which maximized the damage his behavior caused. So the next part is terrifying, really. Paul rebuked Peter publicly, before them all, it says in verse 14. Now, Peter's failing was a public failing that was causing others to stumble in their own faith, so Paul considered it important to correct Peter publicly. Ouch. Can you imagine that? Walking in the truth is not always comfortable. But having our pride injured is generally good for us. You don't want to be proud. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud. Do you want God to oppose you? Because I tell you, you won't get very far if God's against you. But he gives grace to the humble. And Paul says to Peter, you're a Jew living like a Gentile. How can you expect the Gentiles to live like Jews? So again, we see the bottom line here that Paul is drawing attention to Peter's behavior, showing that Peter's expecting more of the Gentiles than he expects of himself. 
Showing Peter that while Peter exercises his own freedom, he's looking to bring others into bondage. Paul's influencing the behavior of the Gentiles and the behavior of the Jews. And sooner or later, we will find ourselves all in the position of influencing or correcting others' behavior. Whether that's our children, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm suggesting that we think before we dive in. That we ask ourselves, what I'm about to say, is it legalistic? Is the emphasis on law rather than grace? Peter is forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. He's introducing them to rules and regulations, and he's teaching them that it is good to follow these rules, that breaking them is bad. Now, this is a very difficult balance to strike, right? Communicating about morality, especially when your job is to raise children to understand good and evil, right and wrong. We do need to give clear instruction about conduct that's good and conduct that is evil. So we do need to think about rules. We do need to pay attention to the law. But it's even more important that we raise our children to understand good and evil and grace. We need to look at all laws, whether human or those that we see written in the Bible, through the lens of the new covenant, the lens of grace. Grace tells us that God is less interested in whether we tick all the boxes, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and more interested in whether we love him and love our fellow humans. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you might see them just as a list of rules. But if you look at those commandments, those wise sayings, through the lens of grace you'll see that they show us, they give us examples of how to express love to God and how to express love to our brothers and sisters. The point isn't that we follow the law. The point is that we follow the one who wrote the law. Let's not force the Gentiles to live like Jews. And now we really come to it. Verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now let's just deal with something first. Paul's first comment here probably sounds a bit rude to our modern Western ears. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's not being rude. He's just highlighting a technical legal difference between Jews and non-Jews. So um, as Jews living under the old covenant, under the legal and the ceremonial law of Moses, he has, this is Paul himself, has an opportunity to live as a righteous person by observing the law, an opportunity. That's the way the Jews viewed it anyway. If they kept this law and that law, if they tithe scrupulously and observe the Sabbath and so on, they would be accepted by God as holy. And meanwhile, non-Jews are referred to as Gentile sinners because they don't have the law of Moses. They have no opportunity to be anything other than sinners. 
So Paul's purpose isn't to talk rudely about the Gentiles, about you and me. He goes on to say, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul, as a Jew, had the benefit of the law. Jews thought that the law would be their gateway to the blessing of God. But Paul says, no, that's not the way. It doesn't work the way we thought it did. A person isn't justified, isn't saved by following the law. The only way to salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. It's easy to switch off, isn't it? Because if you're a Christian, you probably believe all that, don't you? Or do you? I don't know if I'm alone in this, but from time to time, I'm still haunted by some of the bad things that I've done, uh, old mistakes, past sins, or even recent sins. And I've repented, I've asked God for his forgiveness, and yet when I remember the event or what I did, I somehow still feel guilty. I still feel bad about it. Do you ever have that? And my mind goes back to that time, and I feel a sense of horror, and it really bothers me that I have no way to make things better, to undo what I did. Does that sound familiar? But what's my problem? I think my problem is that I want to be righteous. I want to be clean. And the willful, the self-sufficient, self-righteous flesh inside me wants to get clean by my own means. In my sinful pride, and it is pride, I want to fix my own mess. That feeling that I need to do something to make things better, that's the false doctrine of salvation by works, right there. The idea that somehow I can get to heaven by being a good boy, by making sure I've corrected every wrong. I need to be honest about this and admit that it's pride, and anything that stands against the truth of God is pride. But this is what the Jews thought. That's what they believed the law was for, to make them clean, to right wrongs, to fix their sin. But the Jews were missing the point. I'm missing the point. Not to steal Andy's thunder, because uh, he's going to be preaching on this in the next month, but let's just take a sneak peek a bit further into Galatians. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 26. Galatians 3, 23 to 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law had two functions, It supervised us, and it prophetically pointed to Jesus. It didn't save. It could never save. The only way to salvation is, and always has been, faith 
to reach out and receive the freely given gift of God. Grace. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even if we had the law, even if we weren't labelled sinners due to a legal technicality, still we could never save ourselves, not by keeping the law, because no one can keep the whole law. Peter knew this. You can read the, the whole story of Peter's vision of, about the clean and unclean foods in Acts 10. But in a nutshell, God told Peter explicitly, he told him absolutely clearly that he is not bound by the Jewish dietary restrictions, by the rules and the ceremonial law about clean and unclean animals. God told him those rules had no power to save him. And despite knowing that, Despite having that revelation, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and cozied up with the legalistic Jews. Now, I don't know, maybe he thought he was in danger of losing his popularity with them or something. If following the law doesn't help then, what's the answer? Now again, if you've spent any time at all in this church, you know what's coming next But don't switch off. Just keep listening, please. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Does that sound like a bit of a wordy, repetitive verse? It should do, because it is. When I'm doing DIY, and it involves nails, I can never get the nail in with one strike of the hammer. It usually takes two or three whacks, at least, possibly with a thumb in the middle. Paul's driving home a nail. Smack. A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Smack. We are justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Smack. By works of the law, No one will be justified. He really wants us to get the point, doesn't he? But also notice how the focus of his thoughts changes with each strike of a hammer. First, a single person. (coughs) Secondly, himself. And third, everyone else. So he's, he's expressing a universal law. Not you, not me, not anyone... No one gets to heaven, no one is saved by following the law. The only way is faith in Christ. The only way is faith in Christ. People don't like Christianity, you know. They don't like to be told, this is the only way. It's Jesus' way or the highway to hell. No, they like to say, all paths lead to God... My scriptures, my spiritual figurehead, every bit as good as yours. But that would leave us with a contradiction, I'm afraid. Either they're right or Paul is right. They can't both be right. It can't be true, both, that faith in Jesus is the only way and there are many ways to God, to heaven. 
The grass is either green or it's not green. It can't be both green and not green. Why is Christianity so different to every other belief, to every other system of morality? It's this. Christianity is not about what you do. It's not about meditating properly. It's not about saying the right prayers. It's not about making sacrifices. It's not about giving to charity. It's not about doing good deeds. It's not about being nice to people. It's not about any of those things. Sure, you can do all those things and be a Christian, but that's not what makes you a Christian. Christianity isn't about what you can do. It's about what's been done for you. It's about admitting we can't do it. It's about saying, I give up. I surrender. Let me put it this way. If you started today and carried on until the day you died, could you eat the planet Earth? No? Because that's what we do when we try to be a good person. It's too big a task. We can't do it. We have to let go of our pride. We can't undo our own sin. We can't climb a ladder to heaven. Faith in Jesus is the only way. Faith in Jesus is the only way. Faith in Jesus is the only way. Stop trying so hard, Rob. You know, even today, I still feel bad about not making more converts, about not leading people to Jesus, as if that was my job. It's not. It's the Holy Spirit's job. I just need to let go and make myself available. I can't win God's favor except by putting my trust in his son. You can't win God's favor through what you do, what you say, how you think. Stop trying. Just trust him. So to sum all this up, in fact, to sum up the entire book of Galatians, the important principle we need to know, we need to work out in our lives, is justification by faith, in Christ alone. Don't aim your life at good works. Aim your life at Christ, because the good works will follow. But not because you're trying, because your life has been changed and you can't help it. Aim your life at Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just have to admit that this is, this is a difficult thing for me to grasp. I am still getting this wrong regularly. I am still trying to be a good person. I am still trying to do the right thing. I am still beating myself up when I get it wrong. And Lord, I ask that you put to death my pride. Any sense in me, any sense in us, that there's anything that we can achieve that will make you happy, except for our faith in your Son. And we must thank you, God. We must thank you.
that compared to all that effort, you have made it easy. You've made it so easy to let go and to say, I accept you, Jesus. That is the right way for me to go. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for making these principles so clear, for driving in the nail. Just ask that you get it through my thick skull, Lord, because this is, this is stuff I need to hear. May your word minister to our hearts. Amen.